Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. When you are performing at a high level, when you do things automatically, you tend to have a really bad memory for what you just did, which is one of the reasons that sometimes the best athletes make bad coaches. And it's not just about professional athletes. I mean, we've all choked, which is why I think it's inherently interesting. It could be in a big, important situation, like a pitch to a client or an important test or when we're playing, you know, in front of a crowd, but it could be a really small thing. We're going to have to focus on women as we come back into the workforce, but we're also going to have to focus on ways that we can be compassionate with ourselves for not being and getting done everything we wanted to get done, get done, get done. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Sean Baylock. Sean is the eighth president of Barnard College in New York. It is a all-female college, and she is a cognitive scientist who wrote an amazing book called Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right when you have to. Look, we've all been there, whether it's standing in front of a room to do a presentation, or in my case, popping up on a surfboard. You know what to do, you've done it, but you choke. Why? In this episode, we will cover what to do when you choke and how you correct that problem from happening in the future. I loved, loved, loved this conversation. Please enjoy this very wide-ranging conversation with Sean Baylock. Sian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, I am so happy that um, your office has taught me how to spell your name, how to pronounce your name <laughs> properly, because I'm sure that uh, you have lots of issues with people saying cyan and all kinds of things. And yeah, Sean. Yeah. Sean. Interesting. It's like a Dutch version of Sean. Okay, it, I got it's it. Actually, my name is Gaelic and it's supposed to be Sean, but my parents thought it was Sion. So here I am. Oh, wow. Look at that. Okay. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show because we are going to get to dig into why people choke under pressure and how we're going to be able to help them fix it. So you have a you have a big task on your shoulders here. So 
let's uh, let's rewind the clock just a little bit so people can get to know you. I want to talk about growing up in Berkeley uh, in the '80s. Many people have a certain view. We'll we'll put that in quotes about Berkeley. Um, how would you describe? what it was like growing up there, let's say hindsight being 2020. Yeah, I think my parents were um, hippies to yuppies. I guess they don't like it when I use that label, but I think that works. I had a really fortunate upbringing. I think I was very well supported, uh, but there was expectations for success for me as well. Some of those expectations caused pressure. My parents had sort of grown up at Berkeley, had, had gone to Berkeley and you know, we're always pushing to change the system and then we're leaving systems. And I think I felt as a kid, um, a lot of pressure to be good at things. So what's interesting about that is that pressure then wound up following you as you got a little bit older and your, your Ted talk talks about this. And we're going to link that Ted talk up in the show notes, but you, you love to play soccer. And you found yourself um, as as one of the as one of the best goalies in the country. And there was <laughs> there was a pivotal moment where you had a chance to prove yourself in front of a national coach. And can you walk us through a little bit about what happened that day and how it impacted you moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'd always strive to be my best on the playing field and in the classroom. And I was playing soccer at a pretty high level. Goalkeeper is a stressful role. So um, it wasn't like I shied away from the pressure. But I have this memory of all of a sudden realizing when I was playing on the California State team that the national coach was standing behind the goal. And my entire being changed, right? Rather than excited and enjoying the game, I started sort of paying attention to my every move. And I missed like what should have been the easiest shot to save. And then it was because I was sort of monitoring everything I was doing as I was doing it. I wasn't going with the flow. I hadn't, I wasn't letting myself do what I'd trained to do. And it was, you know, just absolutely an excruciating experience. I remember walking off the playing field and being just heartbroken, but also kind of confused because ironically, I wanted to perform at my best. Um, and I, I really performed at my worst. All right, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. You mentioned Go With The Flow. Ironically, I'm reading a book I hope you read. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis. <laughs> have you read it? Yes. My, oh, dad, my dad gave me a copy of it. I still have the copy he gave me when I was like nine or 10 years old, actually. Um, okay. And there's some, definitely some some similarities between um, what's talked about there and, and my research in general. Okay, perfect. Perfect. I'm so glad you read the book because I didn't, I didn't know if we were on the same page, pun intended. Okay, so... Galloway, right? In, Isn't that the... Yeah, Gal Tim Galloway. Yeah, yeah. So here's the question. I just started learning. I moved recently. I live now in, in Los Angeles. And I recently um, decided that 55 years old, I'm going to learn surfing. So, you know, I got to be nuts, but I decided that that's what I want to do. <laughs> hope you have a long and board. I have a very long board. <laughs> I, it, actually, it, it's the size of the Queen Mary, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but the instructor I go out with every week is giving me the instruction. You know, you got to lie in your belly and pop up and, and, you know, everything you have to do. The more that I am remembering do this and then do that and the mechanics of it. 
the worse I get. The more I'm in the water and I'm enjoying the Southern California sun, feeling the water and just sort of letting my body do what it thinks it needs to do, the better surfer I am. But then I try and think back, well, what the hell did I just do? How did I, how did I do that? And then I get all screwed up again. So what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, first of all, I, it's admirable that you're, you're taking up surfing now. And, um, I, I look forward to, to watching your hearing about you getting better and better. Um, but you're already an expert balancer, right? You've learned, you've been balancing since you were a baby. And I imagine when you have to pay attention to every single mechanical thing you're doing, the things that you would do automatically, you're actually disrupting. And so certainly there's some tips and tricks that are really good. But as you get better and better, you'll, you will stop thinking more and more about the individual elements of what you're doing, where you're putting your feet, where you're putting your hands. You'll start looking at the waves. You'll start enjoying everything else. And I think when you do that now, your body kind of knows what to do. I don't think you have to look back and try and think about exactly what you did. In fact, I talk a lot about how when professional athletes are interviewed after the game, after they had a great performance, they often give really bad interviews because they don't know what they did. They either thank God or their mom. Those are the two go-to places. And I think we think that they're much more into their moms and religion than they actually are because they have nothing to say because they weren't paying attention to what they were doing. That is real. That's really funny. <laughs> This is my I don't know what else to say, so thanks, Bob. Proven um, hypothesis, but the part of it that is based on science is that when you are performing at a high level, when you do things automatically, you tend to have a really bad memory for what you just did. Which is one of the reasons that sometimes the best athletes make bad coaches because it's very hard for them to take what they did and explain it to other people in a way that they can get it. So it's sort of like the unconscious competence and the conscious competence, right? Yeah, they're and and both are important, right? I mean, you have to when you're as you get better at surfing, you'll start looking at the contour of the waves and how you want to catch it and where other people are and all that kind of stuff, and that's very conscious and explicit. But that unconscious needs to be there too. And one of the reasons it can't all be conscious is that we only have so much of a bucket of conscious attention to begin with. It's why driving and talking on the cell phone is so bad. And since you're in LA, I'll, I'll give you a lecture about that. It actually yeah. has nothing to do with being hands-free. Um, it's about the attentional demands. It turns out that when you are attending to both the driving and who's on the phone, you don't have as much attention to pay attention and react unexpectedly on the road. And so I use this in my classes where I talk about it as a really good example of policy and science not being in the same place. You know, the cell phone companies lobby for hands-free headsets and all that kind of stuff, but it's not the motor component. It's the attentional component. You can only pay attention to so many things at one time. So it's our, so the, the reason why that's in place is so that we could, I guess it's, it's survival in some ways that we can make sure that we're only juggling one, two, three balls at a time, because otherwise we can't have to use a computer analogy, we can't have 20 screens open trying to do it. Our brains are just not wired that way, right? Yeah, and I mean, imagine if you did take in all the information around you. Like right now, you're not thinking about your pinky toe until I tell you to think about it. Um, but, you know, imagine if you had to pay attention to how all your toes felt and everything going on around you, you it would be information overload. 
And so we've certainly evolved to focus on that, on a few things. Yeah. Have you read Blink by Gladwell? Mm -hmm. You have. And do you remember the concept that he talked about with thin slicing? Mm -hmm. When I think about thin slicing and your research, I'm wondering... With thin slicing, it's sort of like they'll take a, you know, the example he uses in the book is they'll take a, they'll take a painting and they'll, you know, put it in front of somebody who knows authentic paintings. And they'll ask them in in one second, is this real or fake? And in a second, they can answer it. But it's because they've seen thousands of them that there's a blink. There's an ability where they can do it. So how much of a role does repetition and training you get where I'm going with this yeah. question. Yeah, I mean, I think it plays an important role, right? I mean, I wouldn't be telling you not to think about things if you were learning how to play soccer or even tennis. I mean, there's something about surfing where you're balancing that's pretty automatic and natural, right? You already know how to do that. But we know that when you're learning how to do something really complex, you have to pay attention to certain elements. But as you get better and better at what you're doing, the ability to have or the need to have to monitor all these things goes down. And in fact, if you start paying too much attention, especially what tends to happen in stressful situations is that you disrupt your ability to do what you were doing, what you would have done fluently. All right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some examples and then I want to dissect a bit ch- of uh, choking. By the way, every time I say that, it always sounds weird. I feel like I'm choking somebody. So I, I wish there was another way I can describe it. Because I was talking to somebody last night when I went out to dinner. I said, I'm interviewing somebody on choking. And they're like, during sex? I'm like, no, 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 no. No, it's a- <laughs> I, I talk about that in the book too. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. All right. So, well, well now, and listen, now we're going to have a New York Times uh, double bestseller here because everybody wants to hear about that. Are there some examples of professional athletes who have choked- looking back and could you see why it happened? In other words, you know, could you see somebody walk into the octagon or somebody getting ready to ski or play tennis and you look, and you go, oh, this is not good. Is there something that you, that stands out for you in particular? Yeah. I mean, certainly we all have our famous, our favorite examples of when people choked. Sometimes you can see them straight on. One I like to use is Jean Vandeveld, who was playing at the the British Open many years ago and was going to be the first Frenchman to win it and was ahead by three or four shots on the 18th hole. And when you just watched him walk up to that, the, the last drive, you could see he looked different, right? But some of it you can't see from the outside until it actually unfolds. And I think that's what's so interesting about choking is that we can't predict necessarily when it happens. And it's not just about professional athletes. I mean, We've all choked, which is why I think it's inherently interesting. It could be in a big, important situation, like a pitch to a client or an important test or when we're playing you know, in front of a crowd, but it could be in really small things, right? When you raise your hand to ask a question at a meeting and you start stuttering on your words or when someone introduces themselves to you at a party and you can't figure out how to tell them your name. I mean, we all have situations where all of a sudden we are not able to do things because we're worried about what others think that are pretty actually easy for us to do otherwise. You know, I went to uh, a Tony Robbins event and he talked about coaching Andre Agassi and he showed us footage 
And he showed us footage in the 80s. Remember when he had the ponytail and, you know, the whole thing, it, like that whole 80s vibe, right? So they showed him like <laughs> walking up, you know, with the short shorts and the ponytail and and he freezes it. And he asks uh, Agassi, he said, what were you thinking right in that moment there? And he said, I was thinking, why did that guy even show up? And obviously he wins Wimbledon. And then they show the same footage or another, another time in Wimbledon where he got, you know, his, his ass handed to him. And he stops it again. And he said, what were you thinking here? And he's like, why did I show up? And there was a difference in physiology in how he walked onto the court and how he held himself. So speak to that a little bit. How much does your identity, your intention, your belief, your, you know what I mean, your physicality show up in whether or not you're gonna choke versus what this internal dialogue in your head is saying, like, I'm gonna get my ass kicked. Yeah, I mean, I think they're inextricably linked and both really important, right? So we've done a lot of work showing that how you think about a situation really matters, right? If you think that you're gonna play well, you're more likely to play, play well than if you think you're about to choke. And it's not, and it plays out because your body sends signals up to your head about how you should think and vice versa. So I wouldn't even say they're that separate. And it's really nice because then you can use both to sort of affect change, right? I'm a big proponent of faking it till you make it. Walk out on the court with you know shoulders high, whether or not you feel that way. It's good for the other person to think you feel that way. I'm a big proponent of that. And then the idea is to change your mindset. So if you're walking out thinking, oh my God, my hands are call me and um, my heart is beating really fast. Oh shit. You can change how you think. Instead of the fact that that's a sign or uh, that you're going to fail, remember that when your heart is beating fast, it's a sign that you're ready to go. You're excited. Actually, it's the same physiological response when you're excited versus worried. And that heart is shunting blood to your brain so you can think. And we've shown in my research, actually with high school students taking a really important final exam in their their science classes, that just getting them to think about those physiological symptoms differently, rather than a sign you're going to fail, but a sign that you're going to succeed, actually helps them do better on their science exams. Let's take the reverse. Let's say that we wanted to make somebody choke. Is there a particular, <laughs> let's say that we did, right? Is there a particular sequence? Like in other words, if, if somebody said to me, I want you to be depressed, I would drop my shoulders. I would start thinking what a loser I am. I would start talking softly. Like I could do depression, right? Is there a particular sequence of things that someone must do if they wanted to choke? And, and the reason why I'm asking it that way is because the reverse of it will be true. Yeah. So one thing I, I that we often see a lot of is sort of slowing down before you're about to do something because attention and focusing too much takes time, right? It takes time to deploy it. So you often see that it'll spend more time thinking over a putt. And I always make the joke that if you want, you know, your buddy to choke on the back nine, you, you say, you know, that was a great thought. That was a great last shot. What were you doing with your elbow? That's really good. So in other words, you're bringing your attention to something that you really should not be bringing your attention to. Let's say that you, now let's do the reverse of that. Instead of doing that, is there a question that they should ask or is there a feeling that they should be in? Or how, do you, how would you tell that same person to 
to get to, to do know, great. Right. So this is where like in my book, Choke and in my TED talk, I talk about tools, right? And so we know that if you have like a mantra or a swing thought, one word that encapsulates what you're going to do, like on, on in the ocean, you know, smooth or balance something, you're less likely to start focusing on the details. Something really simple like singing a song or... Um, having a target you're focused on, anything that takes your mind off of the step-by-step details of what you're going to do. Um, and repeating that mantra or having that swing thought can also be great in more cognitive tasks, like when you're giving a talk or pitching to a client where you're trying to remember every little detail of what you're doing, You know, just having the three points you want to get across down. That's it. These are the three things I want to get across. And every time you start looking inward, just going back to that can be a real sort of beacon in terms of getting through that stressful situation. I love this because I just started, I mean, I moved to LA, so I have to be taking transcendental meditation, right? They're not going to, I'm going to lose my LA card if, if I don't come here, if I don't do that. The surfing is part of it too. Well, (laughs) well, that's part of the midlife crisis. That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) But the, the, the TM, I just felt like I got a lot of chatter in my head. So everybody's like, you got to try it. Right. You know, and Seinfeld does it and all these big celebrities. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So what I learned is what you just described, which is you the use of a mantra. And I learned that the word mantra means mind vehicle. And the use of the mantra during meditation has caused me to stay focused on the word, which which interrupts the chatter and allows me to transcend, as it were, which is basically just deep, deep relaxation. I'm getting above the thoughts for sometimes seven seconds, but at least I'm getting above the thought, right? But I never thought of using it in the way that you described, which is to use the mantra while I'm surfing smooth or whatever, I'll come up with something that works for me. It could be powerful, right? Whatever the, whatever the word is that will stop the chatter that keeps going. When you paddle, paddle under the board, bigger strokes, you know, like, cause that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, hands on the board, chest up, pop up, uh, sumo to the right, arms out, lean forward. <laughs> I mean, I'm done by the time I get to the pop up. That you must know? be exhausting. <laughs> it's exa- it is exhausting. It really is exhausting. So hence my instructor keeps keeps telling me you're making this harder than it needs to be. So that's great. I love that. Um, okay. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is you you mentioned your heart rate going up in the same way when somebody's choking. Obviously, let, let's use public speaking. We haven't talked about that one yet. So you know. People, we've all heard that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are than than dying, right? Like it's, that's how it's powerful. after. I think Americans fear just after death. Death does win, just, but it's so right death after. Wins. Death wins. It's a close second. It's a okay, close second. It's a close second. Okay, so your heart rate goes up and you get all sweaty, which is basically the same thing that happens when you're excited. So physiologically, is there any difference between the two? Not much. Not much at all. Which is which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Which brings home the fact that how we think about it really matters, right? Our mindset matters so much in this situation. You know, you come from a uh, a family of lawyers, yeah? Yes. All right. So why are you doing this 
<laughs> and not that. It's funny um, because I thought I was going to be a lawyer because everyone in my family was a lawyer. And uh, my mom spent an entire year when I was in college taking me out to lunch with every unhappy lawyer she knew. Um, Because she knew if she told me not to go to law school, I most definitely would go to law school. Of course. Um, But, you know, she wasn't opposed to law school. I think she just wanted me to know that there were other things out there. And I was always so interested in how we perform and why we perform the way we do. And um, when I discovered you could study it, like you could actually have a career asking questions and finding answers, I was hooked. Carol Dweck is an alumni from the college to which you are the president of, which we're going to talk about in a moment. How has her work influenced, her work, uh, she wrote a book called Mindset. How has her work influenced your work, i.e. vis-a-vis your book, Choke? Yeah, well, I knew Carol way before I was at Barnard. She's, you know, a a big um, name in in psychology and in learning. And, um, you know, her work has had a a huge impact on on some of how I think about performance. I mean, I think what's so similar about our ideas is how much simple things can change how we perform, how parents talk to their kids, how we think about abilities as fixed versus malleable. These little things can change what we do. And if you take anything away from my work, I hope it's two things. One, we're not born chokers or thrivers. You can learn not to choke like anything else. And two, being exceptional or performing well is not just about having skill. It's about being able to perform that skill when it matters, which is about the psychology as well. And so I think, you know, her work talking the power that shows the power of how we think and how we speak is very similar to, to some of what I do. All right. I want to take you out of the book in college for a moment. I want to take you into your home. You have a little daughter, right? Or how old is she? Nine. She's nine. Not okay. so little. She start, not so little <laughs> anymore. Now she's, now she's nine. But now you are homeschooling. Yeah. Well, she's back. She's finally she's back. went back in person, but we've spent most of the year Zoom schooling. Okay. How has that been for you? Because you are someone, you know, you're an executor. You write books, you're the president <laughs> of a college, you get shit done. You know, how how has that how has that impacted or how did that impact your life? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic certainly has been hard on everyone. And I'm so fortunate to um, to be in the position I am. I know that so many people have, are, have really suffered in immeasurable ways. But I think, you know, it really does bring up something that I think about as the president of Barnard, which is the premier institution in the country focused on women, is that women have had an inordinate amount of the labor associated with this pandemic. Um, it's no secret that most of the child rearing falls on the woman. Um, and now you're trying to do that. And for me, run a college, write articles um, while juggling having you know a nine-year-old at home. It's difficult. And so part of what I've been practicing is trying to be compassionate with myself about what I can mm-hmm. accomplish. I think when you aim to be a high achiever, you really give yourself a hard time about not always being at your best. I really, I think that we're going to have to focus on women as we come back into the workforce, but we're also going to have to focus on ways that we can be compassionate with ourselves for not being and getting done everything we wanted to get done. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, it's, it's, it's in, in a way it's, uh, it's very unfair that women have had the brunt of this. And, and I've been guilty of it myself. We have a six-year-old daughter here and, you know, uh, there is, my wife has taken over the load, but she has her own business. She has her own life. She's trying to figure it out herself, but yet there's the mommy, mommy, mommy thing. And, uh, you know, I do the best I can, but, but I could see, I could see that. Speaking of women, you are the president of, um, the arguably the world premier college, uh, for women. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to ask you some low hanging fruit questions. Okay. Why did you want to be the president of Barnard? Well, Barnard is singular. There's like nothing like it, which is what really attracted to me to it. So it's a small school focused on empowering women and across the arts and sciences in the middle of New York City. But it ha- we have a relationship with Columbia um, such that it's really the best of all worlds. So um, our, all of our cro- classes are cross-listed, our faculty work are tenured at both institutions. And so our students get this small, really tight-knit community focused on empowering women, but within the context of a larger institution. And what the end result is, is that our women come out with these incredible voices. And it's not that you wouldn't get that at a co-ed institution or an institution that didn't have women at its focus, but it, it ends up being more likely to have that happen. And I'll just give you a couple of examples why. One is that you see more women in leadership roles. So I'm president, 60% of our faculty, 60% of our science faculty are women. So women see other women. The other is that we talk about gender and stereotypes in all their forms. It's explicit. We break them down. You know, There's no biological reason girls and boys should be any different at math. We talk about why that's the case. And the third, which links back to all of my sports research, is that when the smartest person in the room is a woman and the person that knows the least is a woman. You just take gender out of the equation and you become, it's kind of like learning to hit a tennis ball against a wall. Speaking up becomes automatic. And when our women go out into the workforce or into Columbia classes or into New York City, they don't think twice before having a voice. And that's what Barnard women come out with. They come out with this incredible voice and our graduates go off and change the world. And it's, I think it's because of some of what they're getting here. You know, it's really interesting. Have you watched uh, Schitt's Creek? You know, I keep on starting it and stopping it. I can't get through, but everyone tells me that I three need Three episodes. Three episodes. Okay, get through three. Two. I've gone to two. Get, I'm going to tell you, this is the, this is the gateway drug. You get, th- you get to three. Once you get finished with the third, you won't, you won't be able to stop watching it. Trust me. Okay. Um, the character who's gay on the show decided that he didn't want to mention at all that he was gay. He just wanted to be in a gay relationship and go through the episodes as any other couple would go through the episodes and never mention it at all. And what made me think about that is the way you're describing your environment there of being all women. So there is, when you're surrounded by women, all of that male female thing is it just stops because you're just there to learn it's not part of the equation right and so you know our students our classes are oftentimes 
mixed with Columbia and Barnard students. So it's not always the case. But you know, when your your advisor in your chemistry lab is a woman, and when you're in computer science and you know the person leading the help room is a woman, and the person who knows the least is a woman, and the person who is excelling is a woman, it's just off the table. And there is really something to seeing is believing. Like representation actually matters for what you think you can accomplish. So I want to talk about gender. This is a hot topic now. In uh, in Target, they're taking down the boys' section and the girls' section. They're naming—I don't even know what they're naming it. They're naming it something else. The bathrooms here are like everything is. You know, when I get an email from somebody, they're telling me that they what their preferred pronouns are. I'm an old guy. I'm 55 years old. This is <laughs> uh, this is a like this is so hard for me to grasp. No judgment, please don't email me. I get it. I understand <laughs> it. How has that impacted you in school now because you are dealing with one gender, right? Has that been an issue for you and if yes, how are you navigating it? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting and tough question. So, um you know, Barnard is a college focused on women. And to apply to Barnard, you have to live and identify as a woman. Um, you could be a transgender woman in, in that way. Once you get to Barnard, our community is our community. However you decide to live and, and represent yourself is, is great with us. But, you know, I think until we see the kind of parity in Fortune 500 companies and in the academy and leaders across the world, there is a need for the kind of environment that we're in that empowers young women. And, and, and I feel very strongly about that. And I think we can see it in terms of our applications. You know, Barnard has a small class every year, about 600 new students. And in five years, we've gone from 6,000 to over 10,000 applications to, to, to our class of 600. You know, women want to be here. Another thing I was thinking about, I was watching just ironically last night, I was watching on Netflix, the number one show on Netflix now is the guy uh, singer who got people into colleges. You remember the story where they were like, they were paying him off to get him into colleges. What is, when you heard about that, what was your reaction to it? Sadness, really. I mean, Barnard is exceptional because it's need blind. We meet full financial need. Um, and I think that to be academically excellent, you need a diversity of views and opinions at the table. And and I was sad to to hear about what had happened. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it it gives what everyone else is doing a bad name. Um, and I yeah. think it, it, you know, it implores us to work even harder to talk about the value of what we do. I mean, I think at Barnard, it's easy. We are a college that's noted for its social mobility in terms of bringing young women in who have lower family income backgrounds and propelling them up. Um, and I always talk about something that I think is really important is our return on investment. And I'll just give you an example of this. For our class of 2020 that graduated in the pandemic, within six months now, 90% are in grad school or working. We help our students learn to think and then they go off and do exceptional things. And I think everyone. There's no doubt that having a college degree leads to more paths. I mean, it's very clear in terms of income, life life expectancy. I think something came out about that today, everything else. And so I think the question is, how do you do that where students are not coming out with a lot of debt? Um, 
and where they they are able to to open more paths than they came in with. And at a place like Barnard, I think we do that well. I think it's you know an issue for higher education more broadly. Did did I read recently that NYU is doing something with tuition where they're 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 you don't have to pay it back or something? Did you hear about this? For the med school, maybe maybe it's the med, yeah. is that what it is? The med yeah. school. There's um, some med schools have gone loan free. You know, Barnard is we we do meet full financial need. We we have a smaller endowment than our Ivy peers, and so um, our students do have some loans when they come out. But on average, about half of our students have some form of financial aid, and on average, in total, they come out those with about sixteen to seventeen thousand dollars in total in loans. So it's not much in terms of what. What's the most fulfilling part of your job as the president there? What do you love the most? Oh, that's easy. I mean, I'm, I get to be around the next generation of leaders every day. I mean, these people are going to run countries and publishing houses and science labs and pharmacies and pharmaceutical companies and hedge funds. And what I talk about is what we do is we teach our students how to think, not what to think. That's a really, really important distinction, but how to think. And I can't imagine a more important job. I love, I want to be, the, you got me sold. I want to be the first man uh, that graduates Barnard. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, as we uh, move towards wrapping up, I'm going to ask you some questions that are going to be like, why is he asking me these questions? So just roll with it. What's on your nightstands? Um, right now, a glass of water and my um, my charger for my app, my iPhone. It's not supposed to be in your bedroom. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence I a lot know. of evidence around that. <laughs> what do people often get wrong about you? I think they they sometimes think I don't have a soft side. Um, people are always really surprised to find me crying in movies and other things because I charge so hard and everything else. <laughs> what is one rule that you have for yourself that you're never going to break? Um, I'll give you a an idealized rule. You know, I try to be kind to myself. And sometimes I break it, but it's really something that, that I, I push really hard to try and do. Yeah. Like we were talking about with the, uh, the mom, mom, mom COVID business. What is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? I love teenage pop culture. I'm so into it. Um, like what? Like everything from the latest singers to, um, what's happening in with movie stars. And I, I always have more information on these things than anyone would ever think I knew. What is it about that that you love? I really, I like seeing people like come up as stars and and sort of make it make it in in a field. I I like that for athletes. I'm just I'm enthralled with like people succeeding in that way, and and it's it's fun to pay attention to things that don't matter to you and for yeah you. yeah yeah. <laughs> Do you do you know who they are? Like if you watch the like I watched the Grammys the other night, I, I felt like my father like <laughs> watching the Grammys. And I'm looking, I'm like, I don't know anybody, but you do. I know some, and then I try and talk to my my daughter about others, and she often like rolls her eyes. But you know, I I, I try and pay attention. I find it really interesting. <laughs> The, the nine-year-old eye-rolling. I know it well. Um, if you could spend m one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh, that's a good question. Well, my um, I have family in Rome and we haven't been in so long. And so right now I'm, I'm missing Italy. And I Italians have a, 
a way of learn, knowing how to relax that I think is often missing from the American culture. And, and I miss that. So uh, you're looking for La Dolce Vita. Um, no no, <laughs> no question. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just, um, right before COVID, I spent four months living in Florence and we moved uh, to LA and um, we've been here now, I guess a little bit over a year. And my heart, is still in Italy. So my uh, great grandparents came over from Naples. Uh, my mother's name, Murgatroyd, is Welch, but uh, my uh, my mom is Cecilia Devito, and uh, we are working on Italian citizenship uh, because I could still get it, it because that it does a whole story there, but I could still get it, which takes a couple of years. But we are moving in fourteen months to Florence oh. um, for the reasons that you just mentioned. There's there's something on the scale of life there that is like no place uh, I've ever been. There's also, everybody knows La Dolce Vita, but very few people know La Dolce Faniente. And that means the sweetness of doing nothing. And they have figured out how to do nothing well. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's funny It's funny that you mentioned that. Um, okay, couple more questions. What one question do people never ask you? They never ask you this, but you wish they did. You know, I think as a leader, oftentimes people don't ask how you're doing, right? I mean, they're... I think in the in pandemic times, you know, we've been pushing really hard and you know, everyone I'm I'm responsible for lots of people, but you know, it's nice to know that people are thinking back as well. <laughs> By the way, that when I ask I ask that question of every guest, that is the most common answer. That's because most of the people most of the people that I interview are high level like you um and everybody just assumes that you're perfect. But um, but that is that is not always the case because you are a human being just like everybody else. My mom asks me all the time when I talk to her because she's mom, and she also tells me I always look tired. So I get it both. <laughs> <laughs> Did she ask you if you ate? She she wants to know if I ate and how much I slept, and that and I and she's often now I've I call her out so many times for telling me I look tired. She's just quiet. And I'm like, I know you're thinking I look tired. Now, just say it, mom. <laughs> just, just say it. it. Go ahead. Just say it. Okay. I am tired. Yes, I am tired, actually. And I talked to her uh, actually last night with FaceTime so she can really see me. And she and then she's, <laughs> she's getting smarter about it. She's like, no, I was gonna say strained. You look strained. <laughs> <laughs> now she's she's parsing words. What book have you reread the most? Well, I've read Inner Tennis many, many times. I will say that. Okay, we'll count. We'll count that. What's your guilty pleasure? Food. I love. I love a good glass of wine and some chocolate. Um, you know, I. It's a necessity in life, but I it, it brings me a lot of pleasure. If you had to do another TED talk, but this time on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about. It could be on any topic you want. What would it be? Well, that's easy. And it comes from an answer before I'd talk about pop culture. I'd narrate something happening in the pop culture world. Breakups you coming sh- together. Like I would be great at that. You would be great. And I, I would be, I'd be sitting in the first, uh, uh, I, I'd come even with COVID. Um, okay. Last question. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? What are you excited about right now? Moving to Italy. Moving to Italy because um, of all of the reasons I've mentioned, but there is there's something on the scale of life there that does not exist. No knock to the U.S., no knock to the great country, but there's something about 
You know, here it is. So I'm in a bar with a buddy of mine in, uh, in Rome and it's late and we're having a Negroni and we're just talking about life. And the bartender is, it was just us, me and my friends. And, uh, the of bartender's course you listening. were having a Negroni, right? What of else course would I was, you what, else, what the hell else would I have? Right. And by the way, watch Stanley Tucci's Finding Italy Everyone on Everyone told me to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It made me think of it because on his Instagram, he, he just did a, how to, how to make a perfect Negroni. But so we're sitting at the, we're sitting at the bar and he overhears the conversation and he's laughing. And I looked at him and said, what are you, what are you laughing at? And he said, you know, you Americans, you make me laugh. And I said, I said, why? He said, in his Italian accent, you remind me of Britney Spears. And I said, <laughs> why? He said, just young and silly and confused <laughs> and you just you're gonna grow up you're just not there yet and i said i said really he said yeah he said your country's 200 years old you take everything so seriously <laughs> he said we're 2000 <laughs> and and there was in that you know in that negroni hayes conversation there was what i learned was that the you know the dna of the italian goes you know, obviously goes back thousands of years, but they have learned to withstand wars and, and pandemics and what really matters in life, food and family. And they love fashion. And, you know, a 90 year old woman is flirting with me when I'm buying a tomato, you know <laughs> what I mean? And, and I'm looking at her going, she's hot, you know, like it's, there's something about that. Like it's an assault on your senses there everything. And it's a little, I moved to California because I wanted great weather and I wanted surfing and I got it. I got 70 degrees, sunny, blue skies, no humidity, no bugs and Mexican food. Oh, and I miss good Mexican food, <laughs> but that's it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's full, it's full stop in Italy. It's it's I, I've got so much more. So that's what I'm excited about. Well, this has been wonderful. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? No, I mean, I think, you know, my goal is to help everyone perform up to their potential. And, you know, I just want to send the message that with the right psychological tools, you can do it. On that note, I will say thank you so much for this interview and we will link everything up in the show notes. Great to be here. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.